I'm your host, Rufi Castro, and welcome to the Epicenter Fresno podcast. Shalom, shalom. Welcome back. In this episode, we are going to be diving into Acts chapter 15. I know I say this in every episode, but if you haven't listened to part one, two, and three of the Sabbath series, I strongly encourage you to listen to those episodes first in sequence before you start this episode, or else you will be at a disadvantage. And some of the things that we're going to be talking about may not make any sense to you. So please, please, please listen to part one, two, and three before listening to this episode. Also, this episode of Acts chapter 15 will probably be a little bit longer than the previous episodes. And in fact, we might need more than one episode for Acts chapter 15. We'll see how that goes as we move forward recording this particular episode. There are two things that I do want to bring up that we need to keep in mind before diving into Acts chapter 15. These two things that I'm going to mention help contribute to not understanding Scripture accurately. So misconception number one, and for some reason, this happens a lot. It happened to me, and it just and I don't know, I can't pinpoint why this is. But we need to remember that by the time we get to Acts chapter 2, Jesus has already ascended. In fact, Jesus ascends in Acts chapter 1, around verse 11, 12, 13, around there. Jesus ascends. So we have to keep that in mind. By the time we make it to chapter 2 moving forward, Jesus has ascended. That will help us navigate through the book of Acts a lot more clearly, remembering and keeping it in the back burner that Messiah has ascended. So we have to keep that in mind. The second thing that we need to take into consideration is that part of the book of Acts is not written in chronological order. What does that mean? Well, we are used to reading books uh, from beginning to end from beginning to end, and it follows a sequence. So there's a sequence of events, and as novels get more complicated, stories get more complicated, there's a lot of jumping back and forth. I'm sure you've read books like that, where the story starts, the main character's an adult, but then it jumps back to when they were a teenager, and then it moves forward to when they're senior citizens, things like that. So those kinds of books, even with all the jumping around, they're pretty much read in sequential order due to the fact that it's all contained in one book. When it comes to the book of Acts, it's a little bit different because when we look at our Bibles, uh, after Acts 14, obviously Acts 15 comes into play, which we're going to talk about. But chronologically speaking, Acts 15 does not come into play after Acts 14. Luke wrote the book of Acts, so Luke is writing and giving us a story of events that occurred. When you have a chronological Bible, you will realize that after Acts chapter 14, 
the epistle of James is next. And after the epistle of James, you have the letter to the Galatians. After the letter to the Galatians, now you have Acts chapter 15. One of the ways to understand this without using a chronological Bible is that the story shifts once you get to Acts 15. Because in Acts 15, you start reading about the testimony of Peter, uh, testimony of Shaul, uh, the Apostle Paul, uh, Barnabas. There, there's these characters that are mentioned in Acts 15, but you don't know their background. What are they talking about? What do you mean they went to go preach here and went to go preach there? This is where the lullaby effect really takes hold because for us that have been in church either from the day we remember or for many years since we know the stories, we're able to piece things and put two to two together. But if you are a new convert, if you are an individual that does not know the Bible, you're barely starting to go to a congregation or to a Bible study, you don't know the background. So when you get to Acts chapter 15, it's pretty confusing because they're, na they're naming these characters and you're wondering, when did this happen? Where, where did this, when did all of this take place? So with the chronological Bible, you're able to understand that there is a gap between Acts 14 and Acts 15. That gap is actually filled in by the epistle of James and the letter to the Galatians. I do recommend every serious Bible student have a chronological Bible. I will, in my humble opinion, recommend you stay away from the day-to-day -day chronological Bible. The reason that I recommend you stay away from that Bible, it has nothing to do with theology at all. What it has to do is you can't just open that particular Bible and realize where you're at. The way that it's set up, you literally have to start from the beginning and it gives you a system of how to read the Bible. So it's very systematic. If you follow that particular system, then you're, you're fine. You're great. But to use it for study and trying to figure out where one book ends, where another book begins, especially Acts 14, James, Galatians, and then Acts 15, it's very difficult because you don't have the names of the books on each page. So unless you follow the way they've instructed you to do it, the name of the book will be on the first page of that particular book. But once you get past that first page, you just see chapter, you see verses, but you have no idea what book you're reading. That's the only reason I don't recommend that particular Bible, the day-to-day -day chronological Bible. That's the only reason why. If you're going to follow the study guide that comes along with it, then great. You're going to be awesome. But if it's something that you want to just open up and figure out right then and there where you're at, it's you're going to be completely lost. So I like it, the one my wife has. My wife actually has, it's the Chronological Life Application Study Bible. Whatever version you decide to get, King James, New American Standard, whatever, it's up to you. They make all the versions. And we'll talk about Bible versions in a completely different episode but that Bible is great because it doesn't matter where you open up, what page you're at. It tells you what book you're in. And obviously you have your chapters and verses. So it's very easy to locate where you're at. Now, regardless of what chronological study Bible you decide to utilize, 
don't try to use it at church unless you you know your history, you know all of that, because you will be completely lost when the pastor or the minister mentions a book and the chapter and the verse and you're lost because Acts 15 is not after Acts 14 in my chronological Bible. I'm completely lost. Hold on, pastor. Slow down. Wait a minute. Can you put the words up on the screen for me? Things like that. So I don't use a chronological Bible at church. I wouldn't take one to church because, um, yeah, people would be looking at me funny if I can't find Acts 15. So, so just to put that out there, right? So I digress. I wanted to mention those two things before we get started into Acts chapter 15, because Acts chapter uh, 15 does start with us having some prior knowledge. So we're going to go ahead and get into the background of Acts 15. There's an issue that is occurring in the, the New Testament church, in the apostolic church, and it has to do between those believers in Messiah that are Jewish and the believers in Messiah that are Gentiles. So both of these groups have been immersed in Yeshua's name. They've been baptized in Jesus' name. They're filled with the Holy Ghost. I'm sure they have evidence of the Holy Spirit as well. So when it comes from a doctrinal point of salvation, they're both equal, except that one group is Jewish and one group are Gentiles. The problem that arises is that those brethren that are Jewish, that were already believers in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, once they believed in Messiah Yeshua by faith, they were immersed in the mikveh, they were baptized, they continued worshiping the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but now with the understanding that Yeshua is the promised Messiah. Their form of worship stayed the same. In fact, when you read Acts and you read that the apostles were going to the temple to pray at the hour of prayer is what scripture specifically states. It is a, it is a time of the minyan. That is the prayer where you have at least 10 adult men. That's now uh, the rules, right, in rabbinic Judaism. Back then it was a little different. You had uh, X amount of believers that were in the temple. You were able to go into the temple and pray. Jewish prayers, if you read the book of Daniel, prayer times were three times a day. So I need to make this very, very clear. Our Jewish brethren who worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who received Yeshua as their personal Lord and Savior, as their King. They were immersed in His name. They were filled with the Ruach HaKodesh, which is the Holy Ghost. They continued to go to the temple to worship the Lord. Nothing changed for them. Now, we'll talk about animal sacrifices a little down the road on this podcast. Right now, I want to focus on the worship of God. Nothing changed. It's all in the book of Acts, and it's all after Yeshua ascended into heaven. The resurrection of Jesus had already occurred. The apostles were still going into the temple to pray and to worship. 
the flip side is the Gentiles. So when you think of the Gentiles, some of the Greek manuscripts actually use the word heathen and not Gentiles. So the heathens, uh, the Gentiles, those of the nation, those that were not born into a Jewish household, uh, those that did not worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, those that were doing their own thing, the idol worshipers, okay, the idol worshipers. When it came to them, this is where things got a little complicated. So the issue is that they are receiving the instruction from first Kepha, right, Peter, then they're receiving instruction from Shaul, uh, the Apostle Paul, and they're coming to faith, which means they're receiving Yeshua as the Messiah. They're being immersed in his name. They're being filled with the Ruach HaKodesh. Great. They are saved by grace. They believed. They followed through. They acted. They're saved by grace. That's not the question. The issue, the question that arises is, do they have to actually go through the circumcision ceremony in order to actually be saved? In other words, do they have to convert and become Jews? Let me pause here. Let me explain what this means. In scripture, especially in the writings of, of Rabbi Shaul, the Apostle Paul, you will find him mention three different categories of people. And this is important because Rabbi Shaul in the book of Acts started preaching Yeshua in the synagogues, in the temple. Then from there, he went to the Gentiles when our Jewish brethren decided not to believe him. He mentions three classes of people. He says, brothers, sons of Abraham, and God-fearers. We need to address these categories because without having first century knowledge and understanding of what Rabbi Shaul was talking about, we think that these are just some sort of titles that he's giving the children of God, when in fact they're not. When Rabbi Shaul says brothers, he's talking about the native-born Israelite the native-born Jew. You have a Jewish mother, you have a Jewish father, you grew up learning Torah, you grew up going to synagogue, you grew up going to temple, you were bar mitzvah, all of that. You believe in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, you're praying and waiting for Mashiach to arrive, for the Messiah to show up. That's who he refers to as brothers. When he says sons of Abraham, He's talking about those Gentiles that have actually gone through the conversion process to become Jews, which means they learn Torah, they learn the history of Israel, they have dedicated their life, and they stated, I will serve the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They have gone through circumcision, and they've gone through the mikveh, through immersion, when they go through that immersion process, through that baptismal process, they go in a Gentile, they come out a Jew, a person that is now recognized by the Jewish people around them as 
a full-fledged Jew. He's accepted into the community. He's able to go to to to, to synagogue and participate uh, because he's now a Jew. Those that have gone through that conversion process, those are the ones that the that Apostle Paul, right, Rabbi Shaul, refers to as sons of Abraham. So we have brothers, natural-born Jews, sons of Abraham. These are converts, Gentiles that have converted to become Jews. And then you have the last category, which is God-fearers. So what exactly is a God-fearer, or who exactly is a God-fearer? Well, a God-fearer is a Gentile who believes in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but they do not convert to actually become Jews. Let me explain what that means, because in our Western mindset, when we talk about conversion, we typically think of a non-believer, if I was, well, if I was to give the example, like in within apostolic circles, a non-believer showing up to church, God touching his heart, they get baptized in Jesus' name, they've now converted, and they are now a child of God. So in our mind, when we hear conversion, that's what we think about. The conversion that we're talking about that the God-fear had not undertaken was the conversion that included circumcision to become a full-fledged Jew. So these God-fears believe in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They go to synagogue. They are tolerated at synagogue. They keep kosher. They celebrate the festivals. They do everything, everything except they have not taken the step to become circumcised in order to be full-fledged Jews. That is a God fear. So in our day and age, it would be that person that is that isn't baptized, but goes to church, goes to Bible study, loves God, lives a holy life, lives a righteous life. They just for whatever reason will not get baptized. Okay, that's a that's a God fear. And it's important to know the difference because when we don't, again, we just think that he's saying, My brothers, sons of Abraham, God fears, and then he goes on with this discourse, when in fact it's three different categories of people. Now that we've gotten that out of the way, we're gonna go ahead and start on Acts chapter fifteen. Again, I'm reading from the Complete Jewish Bible. You can follow along with whatever Bible version you have. But Acts chapter 15, beginning at verse 1, the word of the Lord reads as follows. But some men came down from Jehuda or Judea, to Antioch, and began teaching the brothers, You can't be saved unless you undergo brit milah, which is circumcision, in the matter prescribed by Moshe. Let's stop. The issue at hand is you cannot be saved unless you get circumcised. So again, we're dealing with Gentiles that have repented, that have been baptized in Jesus' name, that for all intents and purposes have been filled with the Holy Ghost. Some of the brothers or some of our brethren's were teaching 
that unless they got circumcised, they were not saved. So the whole issue in Acts chapter 15 is, is circumcision, the act of circumcision, is it necessary for salvation? That's the whole reason why we have Acts 15, this council. Let's continue. Verse number two. This brought them into no small measure of discord and dispute with Shaul and Barnabas. So the congregation assigned Shaul, Barnabas, and some of themselves to go and to put this Shelah or this, this theological question before the emissaries, the elders up in Jerusalem. So they're going to Jerusalem. They're going to the elders of the first century church, if you will, James. Remember I said that the bigwigs, these are where the bigwigs are at. So they're going to take this to Jerusalem because this is a theological question. Verse number three says, After being sent off by the congregation, they made their way through Phoenicia and Shomron, recounting in detail how the Gentiles had turned to God, and the news brought great joy to the brothers. So as they're going to Jerusalem, they're still testifying about who Yeshua is. He's the Messiah. He's the Son of God. And people are converting left and right. Uh, again, they're able to do this because there was an, an airplane for them to jump on to go to Jerusalem. They had to go by either boat, by foot, um, by donkey, what have you. But they continue testifying and people continue to get saved. Verse number four. On arrival in Yerushalayim, they were welcomed by the Messianic community, including the emissaries and the elders. And they reported what God had done through them. But some of those who had come to trust were from the party of the Pharisees. And they stood up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and direct them to observe the Torah of Moshe. Pause right here. So the Pharisees are middle class Torah scholars who believe in the resurrection of the dead. They believe in the complete Tanakh, which is the Torah, the prophets, the writings, what you and I call the Old Testament. They believe that all of that is inspired by God. This is important to note. Yeshua in his teachings aligned very closely to the thought that the Pharisees had. This is important to understand because of lack of knowledge, many times we group Pharisees and Sadducees together and they're about as different as Republicans and Democrats, if you will, just to kind of help us understand very different theologically. Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection of the dead. Sadducees only believed in the Torah, the five books of Moses, that's it. They didn't believe in the prophets. They didn't believe in the writings. They didn't believe that uh, they were inspired word of God. There was a lot of different uh, beliefs. The Sadducees were also upper class. They were in bed with the Romans. There's there's a lot. There's a lot. If you'd like a, a, a concise study on the differences between Pharisees, Sadducees, Essenes, Herodians, the Zealots, uh, let us know. Or again, come to Epicenter. Um, 
as we do those studies periodically in depth to help us understand scripture. So you have these Pharisees that say, basically, unless they're circumcised and they follow the Torah of Moshe, they can't be saved. Verse number six says, the emissaries and the elders met to look into this matter. Verse seven, after lengthy debate, Kepha got up and said to them, Kepha is Peter, brothers, you yourselves know that a good while back, God chose me from among you to be the one by whom the mouth of the Gentiles should hear the message of God concerning the good news and come to trust. And God who knows the heart bore them witness by giving the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit, to them just as he did to us. That is, he made no distinction between us and them, but cleansed their hearts by trust. So we're going to pause right here. So if you recall, Peter had a vision. Peter was on the roof and he was praying and he had this vision. And the Bible says that from heaven, there was this blanket of sorts, if you will, that came from heaven, held up by the four corners, and it had all kinds of unclean animals. And Peter heard a voice that said, Peter, get up, kill, and eat. Scripture records that Peter said, no, my Lord, for I have never touched or eaten any unclean thing. Scripture records that this happened three times and that the voice told him, do not call unclean that which I have cleansed. Many people will use this verse to say, well, see, we can eat anything we want. The kosher laws have nothing to do with us anymore. God said, do not call unclean what I have cleansed. The problem with that is if you keep reading, you realize that that vision had nothing to do with these animals or with what you can eat or not eat. But if you continue to read, you realize that there's a knock on the door and Peter was sent to the house of Cornelius, who is a God-fearer. He's a Gentile. You have to understand that it is not proper. It's not permitted for a Jew to enter the house of a Gentile because Gentiles, for the most part, are idol worshipers especially during this time period, especially there in Jerusalem and the surrounding areas. The majority of them were Herodians. The majority of them were Romans. And the Romans had their own gods. They were idolaters. So it is forbidden for a Jew to enter to the house of a Gentile. With that being said, the Bible says that Peter decides to go ahead and go And he begins to preach the gospel, not only to Cornelius, but the household was packed with friends and family. And scripture records that before Peter was done preaching, if you will, the Ruach HaKodesh, or the Holy Spirit, descended upon Cornelius' family. And scripture says the sign that was originally shown to us from the beginning, which was speaking in other tongues, also occurred with Cornelius and his family. Then, if you keep reading, Scripture says that Peter understood the vision that he had had about that blanket, if you will, that came from heaven with unclean animals. Peter understood that it had nothing to do with the consumption of unclean animals, but that the Gentiles who for centuries were considered unclean, 
God had now cleansed and given the opportunity of salvation, and God approved that by sealing them with the gift of the Holy Spirit, again, before Peter even finished his message. So we said all that to just refresh us on how Peter says that God first chose him that the Gentiles may hear about salvation through him. So let's continue. We're going to pick up at verse number nine. It says, that is, he made no distinction between us and them, but cleansed their heart by trust. So why are you putting God to the test now by placing a yoke on the neck of the Talmudim, the disciples, these are these new converts, which neither our fathers nor we have had the strength to bear? No, it is through the love and kindness of the Lord Yeshua that we trust and are delivered. And it's the same with them. So obviously you have a whole group of people. If you've ever been in a convention of sort, if you're a pastor or a minister, you're going to understand what I'm talking about. If you've ever been to a legislative convention, these things take hours, they take days. There's a lot of debate. There's a lot of going back and forth. It's the same thing here. So I'm sure with what he said, there were some people that weren't happy with that. But let's continue. Verse number 12. Then the whole assembly kept still as they listened to Barnabas and Shaul. This is Paul and Barnabas. Tell what signs and miracles God had done through them among the Gentiles. Again, the whole issue is, do they need to be circumcised to be saved or is baptism in Jesus name enough? That's the whole issue here. Right. Let's continue. Verse 13. Yaakov broke the silence to reply. Yaakov is James. Broke the silence to reply. Brothers, he said, hear what I have to say. Shimon, which is another word for Simon, Simon Peter, has told us in detail what God did when he first began to show his concern for taking from among the Gentiles a people to bear his name. And the words of the prophet are in complete harmony with this, for it is written, After this I will return. And I will rebuild the fallen tent of David. I will rebuild its ruins. I will restore it so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord. That is, all the nations who have been called by my name, saith Adonai, who is doing these things. Yaakov, or James, is quoting a prophecy that is found in the book of Amos, Amos 9, verses 11 through 12. All this has been known for ages. Verse 19. So, once we get to this point, again, when you read it, it just seems, you know, it took us, what, maybe five minutes, even less, if we would have just read all the way through. We don't know how long this took. If it took days, if it took weeks, because this is a theological question. Do Gentiles have to be circumcised in order to be saved. Now, the Torah of Moshe, the Torah of Moses was also mentioned. So next week, we're going to jump into chapter 15, verse 19, and we're going to see what the decision of this council is. Because at face value, when you read it, it just seems like, oh, well, this is great. This is, you know, the Gentiles just got to do this and this. We're good. And, and hallelujah to the Lamb of God. 
but again, you have to remember the lullaby effect. Many times we read the passage of scripture so often, so quickly, that we don't see exactly what is being said. We miss the point of what's being said. So join us next week as we are going to break down the decision of Yaakov, the decision of James, the apostle. He is considered the de facto leader of the apostolic church in the first century. Join us as we go through his decision and allow scripture to interpret itself to help us understand what was it that the first century apostolic church taught in regards to Gentiles coming to the saving knowledge of Yeshua, our Messiah. Don't forget to check out our website, www.epicenterfresno.com, where you will find links to our Facebook page, our Instagram, and our YouTube channel. 